Hello and welcome to the Shazam Cast, Earth's Mightiest Captain Marvel podcast. I'm your host, Jeff. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at 1973's Shazam number one. But before we get started, let me say thank you for the feedback that came in from our knockoff Captain Marvel episode. I appreciate you listening and very much enjoy hearing from you. One of the questions I got is why I didn't include Marvel Man, or as he became known later, Miracle Man. In fact, Marvel Man, along with DC's Captain Thunder, were in an earlier draft of my script for the episode. Thunder was cut because I'm planning on dealing with his origin in an episode, and Marvel Man was cut because he's simply better than the rest of that lot of knockoffs. I'll explain. If you aren't familiar, Marvel Man came to life in the UK after the Fawcett Comics lawsuit was settled, cutting off the supply of black and white Captain Marvel reprints to British publisher Lynn Miller. Rather than ceasing publication, Miller developed a character named Marvel Man, specifically designed to visually give the impression that the Captain Marvel tales were continuing. Marvel Man was the alter ego of a young reporter named Mickey Moran, who, on encountering an astrophysicist rather than a wizard, received superpowers based on atomic energy instead of magic. To transform into Marvel Man, Moran speaks the word Komoda, which is probably obviously phonetically atomic backwards. Instead of Captain Marvel Jr. and Mary Marvel, Marvel Man was joined by Dickie Dauntless, a teenage messenger boy who became young Marvel Man, and young Johnny Bates, who became kid Marvel Man. Both of their magic words were Marvel Man, proving yet again that the Captain Marvel mythos is nigh unstoppable. The series grew very popular. At its height, being distributed to Italy, Australia, and Brazil, that latter country seeing the character under the name Jack Marvel. Eventually, an influx of color comics imported from the States killed off Lynn Miller's market share, and Marvel Man disappeared in 1963. However, two decades later, a 29-year-old Alan Moore would receive control of the character in the pages of a new British anthology series called Warrior. Moore, showing not only the talent, but also the themes he would later present in his more famous works, Watchmen and V for Vendetta, took Marvel Man in a decidedly darker direction, one which may be the practical beginning of postmodern comics on a popular level. Yet again, Marvel Comics would raise their heads with threat of lawsuit over Marvel Man's use of the word Marvel in his name. As a result, In 1985, when Moore's stories were brought into reprint, the character's name was changed to Miracle Man. In some ways, the story of Marvel Man is the linking thread to every significant event in comic history. Born of the competition and eventual triumph of Captain Marvel's battles with Superman in the Golden Age, nearly killed in the same lawsuit that brought Captain Marvel low, then resurrected at the hands of one of comic book's most revolutionary creators, Were that not enough, the character eventually came under the creative control of Neil Gaiman, who brought the character into the 1990s. There, because he touched all things comics in the 90s, the rights to the character were purchased by Todd McFarlane, and very quickly became the center of a creator's rights lawsuit. Finally, in the most cynical turn in this tale, 
The rights to the character were purchased by Marvel in 2009. Thankfully, as a result, Marvel had no one to sue any longer, and the character stopped being legally contested, and you can find stories published as recently as March of 2015. So why leave Marvel Man out of my list of Captain Marvel knockoffs? For me, the thing that grouped the characters I covered in the knockoffs episode is their inherent lack of quality. Fat Man, Super Green Beret, those guys looked low rent, and their market performance confirmed that conclusion. Marvel Man, on the other hand, though a product of similar dubious origin, rose far above that common mediocrity. Not only has the character remained relevant for the better part of a century, he has also, as I mentioned, been directly involved in a great number of the major sweeps of comic history. His creator list alone, not just Alan Moore, but Neil Gaiman and Chuck Austin, among others, sets him apart from the mediocrity held in common by the characters I covered last episode. So there's my rundown on Marvel Man and why I left him out of the knockoff bunch. Let me know if you agree or disagree with my rationale. Now back to our target issue. Before we jump into the issue, let's take a minute and cover a bit of history. If you think it is a bit twisted that DC is responsible for the attempted revival of the character they attempted to legally execute 20 years earlier, well, welcome to the club. Around the time of publication of Shazam No. 1, DC was looking for a shot in the arm for sales. That should strike us as ominous, considering what we learned from Marvel Comics' launching of their Captain Marvel as a purely business-motivated decision. Having appropriated virtually all of Captain Marvel's defining elements for Superman, DC, through editor Carmine Infantino, decided to go the rest of the way and reached out to Fawcett for a licensing agreement. Fawcett, their hands legally tied to only publishing Captain Marvel with DC's permission, reasonably saw this as the only way to make money with the character, and they agreed. With the rights in hand, DC began to hype the first issue of Captain Marvel's return to comics, creating what has been called the first instance of a comic being intentionally aimed at the collector's market. The issue itself gives us a very direct link back to the 1950s when it tells us the art was done by C.C. Beck. Now I understand why they did this, and I mean no disrespect to Beck or his work, but that decision to involve him in the relaunch seems very wrong-headed to me. I know that DC licensed the Fawcett characters because they needed a sales boost, and while I understand the instinct to offer something different from their main line as a way to engage a different audience, I still think this was a bad move. In this case, I believe the way they chose to be different from their other comics was a misstep, and in a lot of ways has left the Captain Marvel character trapped in a cloying nostalgia. Before I go on, I should say that I like the timelessness of Captain Marvel when he is done right. So I'm not against the retro aspects of the character or his stories. What I am against is doing sentimentality. And, as in this case, calling back to bygone eras in superficial ways that undermine the property. This issue's art style is ported over from an era when virtually all superhero comics were drawn in similar fashion. If not quite as cartoony as Beck here, Golden Age comics nonetheless had a more indistinct and rubbery art presentation. 
By 1970, the industry had moved on to an art style more grounded in the observable world around the reader. Thus, there's an evolution, perhaps even a growth, in the way these characters were presented and consumed visually. By disconnecting Captain Marvel from the trajectory of comics up to that point, and presenting him to new readers in this outdated style, you do not communicate retro credibility. What you communicate is that this character is unevolved, a relic, and I believe fundamentally unserious. Again, I feel like I have to qualify. One of the things I like most about Captain Marvel is the light-hearted and fantastical elements that are part of his heritage. However, doing light-hearted and fantastical the way this comic does erodes the ability of a contemporary fan to appreciate the character on equal terms with those he or she was already reading. DC, in launching this new property, chose an art style that had gone largely extinct 20 years prior. Imagine if today a publisher, in a non-ironic way, were to choose for their character a bladed, belted, overpouched Liefeldian style from the 90s, or the hyper-vivid colors from Spawn back in the early days of Image. Wouldn't that clearly create a barrier to taking the character seriously? I think so. In fact, I think the aforementioned Marvel Man, being published in the UK under the guiding hand of Alan Moore a decade later, proves my thesis to some degree. Moore took Marvel Man in the most realistic direction, and I mean that in the current grimdark sense of the word realistic, and the character found new life with a new audience. Moore went with a character grounded in the real world and found success. DC went with sentimentality, and the audience didn't follow. My suspicions are further confirmed, I think, by the lackluster sales of the title. By April 1978's issue number 34, DC seems to have realized their art was a problem. Bringing Alan Weiss and Joe Rubenstein in provided a look more consistent with current design trends, but sadly, the audience had already made their evaluation, and the series, suffering from too little too late, was canceled after the next issue. In my opinion, the ramifications of this art choice are still being felt and working against, at least in DC Editorial's mind, the potential for Captain Marvel to gain traction in modern comics. That down note out of the way, let's dive into the issue. We open with a fresh-faced Billy Batson greeting an older gentleman named Mr. Binder on the street. This can only be legendary creator Otto Binder, plunked down in the kind of comic he would have created. This is made clear by the bag Mr. Binder is carrying, which bears the initials O.O.B., of course, for Otto Oscar Binder. This is a nice touch by writer Denny O'Neill. Mr. Binder goes cross-eyed after the greeting. Realizing that he hasn't seen Batson for 20 years, and perhaps even more amazing, the boy hasn't aged a bit during his absence. While Binder scurries off questioning his faculties, Batson is left with a classic setup to reminisce on the amazing circumstances of his life, starting with that fateful night, long ago, when he stood in the cold rain hawking newspapers. In this telling of the origin story, much remains the same. Immediately, however, there is a noticeable difference. Rather than being approached on the street by a trench-coated figure, as in the classic origin, here Billy is called to the stranger from an entrance to the subway. The changes here are a mixed bag. Thankfully, 
the creepiest line in the classic origin, Why aren't you home in bed, son? is gone. However, it is replaced with a silhouetted figure beckoning Billy with a hooked come-here finger off the street and into a confined area. You can take your pick as to which looks more like a gruesome scene from a true crime movie. Ugh, I spoke too soon. That line shows back up, slightly modified on the first panel of the very next page, as does Billy's confession to be homeless and, by extension, helpless. The classic panel of the pair's descent to the subway platform is replicated almost exactly. What is different is the entrance to the fantastic subway car that arrives. The car looks much the same as it did in the classic origin, and the dialogue is pretty much intact as well. The glaring change is that the mysterious figure not only commands Billy to enter, but appears to be pushing a shocked Batson into the car. While I didn't think it could be true, it appears that the menacing effect of the story has actually been heightened here. Billy's exit from the car into a torch-lit cavern plays out pretty much as expected, as is his first sight of the seven deadly enemies of man. The wizard Billy meets is much more direct and to the point. Rather than greeting Billy, as in the classic story, the wizard gives Billy his name, adds the detail that he's an ancient Egyptian wizard, and declares that he has been fighting evil for thousands of years. Billy interrupts to ask Shazam how he knows his name, and the wizard informs Batson that he knows everything. Since this origin story is on fast forward, there's no time for the historama to reveal Billy's backstory. No, it is time for the ancient wizard to appoint his successor. So with great insistence, the wizard commands the boy to say his name, and upon a shocked Billy Batson complying, the lightning bolt descends, and Captain Marvel appears where Billy Batson had, only moments before, been standing. Again, this is the compressed version of the origin. So, as the in-panel narration tells us, in the same unbelievable instant that Billy was transformed, the block of stone that hung by a thread above the wizard's throne crashed downward, killing the wizard. Here, reasonably, we get our first holy moly. But before Captain Marvel can even finish his next sentence, the wizard is back, in ghost form, telling Captain Marvel that any time he needs the wizard, he need only light the magic brazier that stood near the former throne. The next panel resumes Captain Marvel's orientation to his new powers. I'd like to pause here and note that this arrangement of the origin story is super weird and a downgrade from the classic story. If you remember, originally in the cave, Captain Marvel is given the full version of the wizard's explanation before the stone crashes down and Billy is transported back to the street. Here, the wizard speeds Batson through not only the shock of what has happened in the journey to the cavern, but also the news that Billy is to be his successor. Then comes the descent of the stone while the wizard calls out, So it is written that I must go. When Shazam returns in ghost form, he picks right back up where he left off. So what's the point of the change? Someone wrote in a book that Shazam had to die by being crushed? So he pauses introducing Captain Marvel to himself to take care of that bit of nastiness before getting back to business? The switch from Old Man Shazam to Ghost Shazam reads like a tag team switch made at a corporate orientation, and I just can't see how it serves the narrative of the story. Anyway, Shazam the Force Ghost is in charge now, and admittedly, 
The first panel on the next page is pretty sweet. Captain Marvel stands at attention in front of a nice framed photo of the patrons, at least their names, who give Marvel his powers. After the rundown, the wizard commissions Captain Marvel to fight all evil on Earth, and then we're back, out of Billy's reverie. From there, it's time to shake off the rust by stopping some street-level crooks, albeit well-dressed street-level crooks, before we return to memory land. And this time, it is Captain Marvel's memory, rather than Billy's. In a story that, at max, took ten minutes of forethought, we find out that at the height of Captain Marvel's in-story popularity, he, Junior, and Mary are caught in a strange beam, and along with many of their townspeople, are towed to outer space. There they find out Savannah is behind it all. His plan is to seal the most important members of the Marvel family in suspended animation within a globe made of suspendium forever. But through hijinks, not only are the Marvels and their fellow citizens trapped, but so is Savannah and his children. Since this story is uninspired to an almost noxious degree, I'm choosing to read it as a metaphor describing what happened to the Captain Marvel character between the 50s and the 70s. Thus, my headcanon is that the mystery ray that pulls the Marvel family out into space is named Baseless Cash Grab Lawsuit, and the Suspendium Globe is actually Legal Purgatory. The only way to make the metaphor more perfect is if Superman flew in from time to time and took anything he found useful with him back to Metropolis. Anyway... Two decades pass in the narrative before Captain Marvel is freed, and ultimately, so is everyone else. The issue ends with Marvel ruining Savannah's latest plot and hauling the entire Savannah family off to the clink. All's well that ends well. Except that, in this case, you've got all the seeds of the eventual cancellation right here in the first issue. So what do we make of the first issue of the Shazam revival? As an origin story, it is basically a straight port from the Fawcett series. However, that choice to pick up right where DC made them leave off left Captain Marvel as a character, I'm convinced, ill-suited to find a new audience. Agree? Disagree? Let me hear it. Go to the Connect tab on ShazamCast.com or social media and let me know what you're thinking. Right now, the plan is to pick up Captain Thunder's origin from Superman 276 of June 1974 for my next episode. That's in the Shazam! A Celebration of 75 Years collection if you want to give it a read before the episode. I'm targeting Thursday, March 10th for that episode to go up. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Shazam! Cast.